Suppose someone asked you this question, what is the kingdom of God? How would you answer? What is the kingdom of God? What do we do when we consider the kingdom of God? Like, where do we go? How do we understand it? And most importantly, how does it impact our lives and how does it affect us? By how we live, how we walk, how we relate, decisions we make, and why we do what we do. And one of the reasons I wanted to share with you this subject of the kingdom of God is because oftentimes what happens is you do something you know is right to do, but you do it so long, you start wondering, why am I doing this again? <laughs> if you lose your why as to why you're doing something, you will eventually stop doing it. Nothing continues with momentum if purpose for that thing goes missing, is lost, is forgotten. And so it is very important for us to bring um, to our understandings this idea of the kingdom of God because... It is what we have been called to. So what do we find when we consider the kingdom of God? Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus was saying this, Do this because of that. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. In Matthew 4, 23, it says, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, synagogues, preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the kingdom of God, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. So we see that this is the gospel or the kingdom gospel. Matthew 9.35 says, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. There, there is a kingdom element to the gospel. So it is very interesting to see just how great an emphasis Scripture places on the very kingdom of God. Yet we don't necessarily talk about this a lot. We don't, it's not part of our understanding when we talk about the gospel. We think about the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, everything that Jesus did on the cross. This is to us the gospel. But there's a kingdom element to this gospel that we need to be introduced to. So if our preaching of the gospel requires us to preach not just the gospel, but the gospel of this kingdom, this kingdom gospel, if we're preaching the kingdom like, it, like we just read Jesus preached, well then that would mean we are going to have to understand what Jesus had in view or in mind when he said, I was preaching the kingdom. I was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So we would have to wrap our minds around what Jesus had in view when he said that. But secondly, we are to then preach the gospel with this very specific, with the same view that Jesus had in mind. In other words, when we preach the gospel, we ought to preach the gospel the way Jesus did. We ought to preach the gospel the way Paul did. And in order to do so, we have to understand what they meant by saying we're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We're preaching the kingdom gospel, or many times he just said, I'm preaching the kingdom. In order to do that, let me just tell you on, fr on the front end, this is going to have to rely upon your current eschatology. Because when you talk about the kingdom of God, you're 
naturally referring to eschatology or your belief of things, of how the culmination of things, the end of things, the goal of things. <laughs> it naturally speaks to that when we talk about the kingdom of God. Now, we used to have on our website what we believe here at Christ Nation, but we're changing that. We're no longer going to list what we believe. We are going to list what we teach. And there's a, re there's a reason for it, because if you put five people in one room, they don't always see everything the same way, right? They don't always agree on all, let's say, uh, secondary doctrines. They might not understand certain doctrines that I've taught and speak of, and, but that's okay. We aren't all exactly on the exact same page on every single issue in life, and nobody is. I find that my wife is oftentimes somewhat ahead of me on certain things, you know, and I always used to tell her, Tina, slow down, will you? I don't have time to read up on that right now. <laughs> I don't want to discuss that right now, and I don't want to say anything because the moment you do, then you find you were wrong, and then you have to change your position, and I change my position so often I get kind of like, um, I, would I would like to first find out about something before I put my stake in the ground, right? And anyway, so what I'm saying is that people, people hold to different views on different things when it comes to close-handed issues. Nobody here holds a different view on the Trinity. Nobody here holds a different view on the Lordship of Christ. No one here holds a different view on the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. But when it comes to eschatology, some people may have different questions that haven't been answered yet. And that's fine. However, what I'm saying is here at Christ Nation, we are going to let people know what we teach, but it's okay if they're lagging behind in certain areas and they don't quite understand why certain things are taught the way they are. But what we want people to know is, this is what you will hear taught when you come here, but you're welcome. Make sense? This is what you will hear taught. I'm reminded of... Uh, you know, Doug Wilson changed his position, has changed his position on many things over time. But one of the things is when he became Reformed, um, his, his father did not. But his father is very much his mentor. And his father is an elder in his church. And his father is a very prominent man in his church. But his father passed away just a year or so ago. However, um, for instance, his father had a problem with the word Trinity because it's not in the Bible. And so Tina and I were talking to Nancy, Pastor Doug's wife, and uh, we asked her, how, how did it work out, you know, being in the same household? Because they actually cared for him all the way until he breathed his last. And he was always an elder in their church and so forth. I said, how did, that, how did that shake out, you know, with him not always being on the same page with regards to certain things? And um, she said, well, when it came to the Trinity... He didn't like the word because he couldn't find it in the Bible. And so one of the grandsons, while they were doing dishes, said, Hey, Grandpa, um, do you believe in the Bible? He goes, cover to cover. He says, but that word's not in there. The word Bible is not in the Bible, right? <laughs> and, um, but the thing is, here at Christ Nation, we want people to know what they will hear taught when they come here. Okay. And uh, for people like myself, 
I listened to certain doctrines for a long time before I went, oh, I get it. As a matter of fact, R.C. Sproul, for five years, fought the doctrines of grace, and then he became the spearhead of it. But I don't know one person that didn't first fight it for a long time, because it just goes against the grain of nominal Christianity. It goes against the grain of traditional Christianity. It goes against the grain of humanism. And so since we raised in all of that, it's difficult. You first hear it and you go like, I, I, it just can't, it's not, it can't be, I don't, it doesn't sit well. Well, when you, when you hang around long enough and you hear things taught and you keep looking into scriptures, after a while, it overcomes your resistance to it. And what I, I'm saying that to say this, that when we start speaking about the gospel of the kingdom, or we start speaking about the kingdom of God in general, it does, it does enter your area of what do I believe about end times? What is God currently doing in the earth? Where is he going with this whole, this theater that he created and he placed us in it? And we seem to be so rebellious and we're breaking everything he's given us. But where is he going with all of this? Does he have a plan? Is he succeeding? People have very different views on that. But I want to show you the gospel of the kingdom. And as we talk about the kingdom, some of these things will surface. All right. So it is fascinating to see that the, the, the central, the centrality of the kingdom message inside of scripture and how the Bible shows that the kingdom of God is very central to the believer's life. Very, very central. That's why eschatology is important. I'll, I'll list a few things. For instance, we have a kingdom gospel, like we've mentioned. I'll read to you Matthew 24, 14. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Then we have, we find a kingdom repentance. So we find a kingdom gospel. Now we see a kingdom repentance right here in Matthew 3, verse 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching, the world, uh, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just like Jesus uh, would say later, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in other words, because of this kingdom here, it is now time to repent. We also find kingdom teaching. In Acts 1, verse 3, it says, To whom he also uh, presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom. In other words, he traveled teaching on the kingdom. Then we find beyond teaching, we find kingdom preaching. In Acts 8 verse 12, it says, but when they believed Philip as he, but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, there he is preaching it. We saw Paul teaching it. We see Peter teach, uh, preaching it. We see it again in Acts 20 verse 25. And indeed, now I know that all that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. And then we see in Acts 28, 30, 31, it says, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God. Then 
so we see we have the kingdom of the gospel, we have the kingdom of repentance, we have the kingdom of teaching, we have the kingdom of preaching, and then we see we have, the, we have kingdom apologetics. In Acts 19 verse 8, it says, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Reasoning and persuading, in other words, apologetics, the things concerning the kingdom of God. All right. So we see that the kingdom of God is very central to what God is doing here on the earth. Now, let's ask the question, what is this kingdom? Well, kingdom in any context is a king ruling over a society. Is a king ruling over a sphere. So the kingdom of God is the rule and the realm of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the kingdom of God. Those whom he rules, those to whom he's king over, he's ruling them. But it, we, we were taught that that's where his rule stops. However, we'll see that that is not necessarily so. In order to answer this question, what is this kingdom? I have to make a distinction between three different words. First, the word save. Jesus is your savior. And that's where people like to land and stay. They don't want to go anywhere else. He saved me, now leave me alone. All right, I'm saved. That's all I need. I don't need to have a, a Lord. I don't need to have a king. All I need is a savior. Uh, so that's the first thought that people have when they think of Jesus. They think of him as savior. But he's beyond savior. He's also our redeemer. What is the difference between saving and redeeming? Saving and redeeming. Well, the difference between saving and redeeming is that he saves you from something and then he redeems you from another. He saves you from, the Bible says, sin, the power of sin, and from death. He saves you from sin, the power of sin, and death, which is also the wrath of God. Remember, Jesus came and he intercepted God's wrath against your sins, and it fell on Christ instead of on you. So, Jesus comes and saves you from sin, the power of sin, death, and the wrath of God. But he redeems you in a different way. He redeems you from your fallen nature. In other words, he takes that fallen nature out, that heart of stone, and he puts in you a brand new nature, a brand new heart that cries, Abba, Father, that wants to be right with God, repents and believes. So he redeems you from your fallenness, from your fallen nature. He redeems us, how? By sanctifying us from, from the inside out. He sanctifies us from our inner corruption, from the desires that used to defile us, from our, from, from our covetousness. He redeems us from all of those things that sin put in us. In other words, he, when He redeemed us, He purchased us out of the slavery to those things. That's what redemption means. When you go to the store and you redeem an, uh, redeem an item, it's because you paid for it. You've redeemed it. It changed ownership. So the moment you were redeemed... He purchased you out of slavery to those things that used to be part of your nature. 
However, what we need to go is go beyond the fact that he's your savior, he's your redeemer, but he is also your king. He is also your Lord. And this is where the kingdom concept comes in. He first has to be your savior and your redeemer before you will even see the kingdom of God. That's why it says in John 3, 3, unless a man is born again, he will not even see the kingdom of God. So the new birth is required before a person can even see the kingdom of God. So if there is a king who rules, then there is a kingdom over which he rules, and that is Jesus. He rules over his kingdom. So the second question we have to ask then is, when was his kingdom established, or when will his kingdom be established? Because here is where people's views change dr drastically and dramatically. There's a group of people who are awaiting for his kingdom to come. And then there's a group of people that believe his kingdom has come. And so we're asking this question, when will or when was his kingdom established? In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, it says, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, this is Jesus speaking, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Of course, we saw Jesus casting out many demons. So, R.C. Sproul says, and I quote, When he came, speaking of Jesus, he inaugurated God's kingdom. He didn't consummate it, but he started it. In other words, he didn't finish building the kingdom. He started building it. Sproul continues saying, quote, So Jesus' kingship is not something that remains in the future. Christ is king right this minute. He is in the seat of the highest cosmic authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to God's anointed Son. Matthew 28, 18. So when Jesus rose from the dead, remember there was a moment where He said, don't touch me yet. I haven't been to the Father yet. Remember that? Yet, the next time you see him appear to all the disciples, you know, he, he showed them their, his hands. And, and, and Peter had to touch his hands. Thomas had to touch his hands. And uh, so what's the difference there? Well, there was, there, was a, there was a coming to God between those two moments where he was coronated king. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to him right then. That was when he became king of everything that exists between the top of heaven and the bottom of the earth. He becomes the ruler over all. He has the highest authority over everything. Now, we, we have this idea that a leader is voted in, right? And we do that every, every election cycle. We vote people in to office and we vote other people out of office. 
So we have this idea of a republic, and, uh, but this is not the, the mindset in which Scripture was written. This is not the mindset of Christ's kingship. This is not the mindset. The mindset of the, of the Bible is kingdom mindset. We, a king is not voted in or out, right? So when the new king is coronated, you have, you have heralds going out throughout the nation going, you have a new king, right? There's a declaration being made. There's an announcement being made. And the gospel is the good announcement. That's actually the, the definition of the gospel, the good announcement. It's good news. There is news. You have a brand new king. But what happens is if we were raised with the mindset of a democracy or of a republic, we actually go out trying to convince people to vote for this person to be king. But that's not how the kingdom works. You aren't going out there preaching the gospel, begging people to vote for Jesus so that he could rule. No, Jesus is already the ruler because God the Father made him so. You and I preach the gospel in a completely different way. We go out into the world proclaiming, as a herald, you have a new king. Now, you may have, you may... Could you try again? <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait for Siri to one day raise her hand. I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, she's getting saved. <laughs> so you and I have to go out there and we have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with a completely different attitude than what we were raised to do. You aren't there wishing people would make him king. No, you are declaring that he already is. And some people in God's kingdom are lawbreakers. <laughs> they reject him. They still have a king. He doesn't suddenly be, no longer become king. Like I said to somebody yesterday, I said, this is why I believe Christianity is, in fact, the true religion, the true faith. And he said, well, yeah, because that's what you believe. I said, even if I didn't believe it, it would still be true because things aren't true because I believe it. <laughs> I've been called to believe what is true, right? And so when you go out there to preach the gospel, you are a herald saying, there is a new king. He has been enthroned. He has all authority from the top of heaven to the bottom of the earth. He rules. He reigns. And you are a lawbreaker. <laughs> you better make right with the king, lest he come and destroy you. So where is this kingdom of God that we speak of? In Luke chapter 17, 20 and 21, it says, Now, when he, has, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Huh. It does not come with observation. Nor will they say, See here, see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. Now, there's a better way to translate the way they translated that. 
The kingdom of God is within you is better translated as the kingdom of God is in your midst. So funny, Tom and Sarah Zadek said, do you realize that every single service you have to ask uh, or say, say it's too cold, too hot. <laughs> like I said to this, because I'm looking at everybody and I can see. And just as I said it, it went off. So here the Bible says, Jesus speaking, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is among you. It's not so much that it's inside of your heart. No, it exists between us. It's among us. That's why it's important for us to relate to one another in a scriptural way. Because it is a king ruling over a society. That's why our church is called Christ Nation. Because it points to the kingdom of God. Made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We are in fact one race, the human race. And from all these different nations and tribes, God has brought together His body. He is ruling and He's reigning over the society. Because the kingdom of God is within our midst. But an interesting thing about this is He's actually saying that it's here. Can you see that? He's not talking about a future kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom of God that is now within our midst. In Joshua 18, 36, and we're asking the question, where is the kingdom of God? In John, excuse me, 18, 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, if my kingdom were of the world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So a lot of people make the kingdom of God a spiritual only entity and they refer to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven as though the kingdom of God exists in heaven and not here. But you can look through scriptures that you will see that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are absolutely interchangeable. The reason Matthew and Matthew alone uses the kingdom of heaven was because he spoke to strictly a Jewish audience and the Jews have a propensity to use different terms for the word God because they didn't want to use the word name of God, especially not in vain. So, they, so since they didn't want to use the name of God, they would, they would say heaven. And so God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are interchangeable. It's the very same thing. However, people have looked at that and they've, they've concluded, therefore, there is a kingdom. It is a spiritual only kingdom. You cannot see it. And it exists in heaven. And one day, Jesus will return and he will establish his kingdom here on earth. And we're looking forward to that day. That's the one position. The other position is that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are interchangeable. It's a one and the same thing. And that it is here and here now that Jesus has already initiated his kingdom. It is growing and one day it will be uh, consummated. It will be, it will come to its fullness. But as it grows, it is evident that it does. It is evident that it does. It has effects. 
everywhere it grows. So here in this portion, Jesus is saying to Pilate, my kingdom is not from here. But he's saying that to Pilate because he's saying that the nature of his kingdom is different from the nature of what you perceive kingdom to be. That's why I'm not calling anybody to pick up arms. I'm not calling anybody to fight. And I'm not doing so because my kingdom works differently than your understanding of kingdom. That's what he was saying to Pilate. He specifically says, otherwise I would call my servants to fight, but I'm not. So here we are taught to pray in a very specific way, if you think about it. In Matthew 6 verse 10, it says, your kingdom come. This is what you and I are supposed to pray every day. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth. We are not taught to pray, your kingdom go. We are not taught to pray that God's will would be done in heaven when we get there. No, we are supposed to pray that it comes and our prayers are the means by which God, or the funnel, or you might say the conduit, God uses as He establishes His kingdom. So we pray for God's will to be done on the earth as it is already in heaven. That's, that's the point. We are praying that the way the kingdom already exists, because Jesus has authority everywhere, right? Top of heaven to the bottom of earth. And the way it already exists in heaven, we are praying and believing that it will be established on earth in the same way. Number four, how does God's kingdom grow? And these things are important to understand because you'll have all these different blank blocks in your mind, right? And every question, you just start filling in one block and eventually the picture becomes clearer and clearer. So how does God's kingdom grow? You see, it is God's will that His kingdom starts small and then gradually grow until it fills the earth. Matthew 13, 32, 31 and 32 says, Another parable, I believe Jesus taught 12 parables in total regarding the kingdom of God. 12. I'm going to show you a few. Matthew 13, verse 31 and 32 says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So we see that it's of the smallest seeds that they had and it grew big enough for, tree, for, for, for birds everywhere to come and nest in the branches. That is how the kingdom of God is. But I believe that one of the emphasis here is, is explaining how the kingdom of God takes time to grow. Over time, it matures. Matthew 13, 33, he says, Another parable he, sp parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till 
it was all leavened. So in other words, we can learn a few things from this one little parable there, two lines, about the kingdom. We can learn a few things. The first is that the kingdom of God may have small beginnings, but will increase and will eventually permeate the entire world. Again, the kingdom of God teaches to not despise small beginnings. You see, Jesus' domain, it started with 12 men in an obscure corner of Galilee, but has spread throughout the whole known world today. It has touched the whole entire world, saved and unsaved, Jew, Gentile, believer, unbeliever. Because the gospel always makes progress. It's like that seed that looks like it just died. Because what, what does a seed have to do? It has to first fall to the ground and die before it'll actually sprout. And it'll eventually become a big tree. So initially, when you look at Christian history, you go like, wow, it looked like Christian Christianity was a fledging religion. It was a dying religion. They were all getting murdered. And, and then eventually, it just, there it is, 500 years later. There it is, 1,000 years later. There it is, 2,000 years later. But what we tend to do is we tend to look at one, one year, we look at six months, we look at five years, we look at, you know, we look at one person's lifetime. Well, what you need to do is you have to zoom out and you get the big picture and see how that seed, the kingdom of God, was sown 2,000 years ago. And man, it's gone through ups and downs, but it's always increased. That leaven leavens the whole lump eventually. So we see the first thing we can learn from that short little parable is that the kingdom of God may have small beginnings, but it will increase and will eventually permeate the entire world. <clears throat> the gospel will succeed. The Great Commission will be fulfilled. The gospel will, will make progress. Number two, we see that the kingdom of God exerts its influence from within, not from without. You see, yeast makes dough rise from within. God first changes the heart of a person, and that internal change has external manif manifestations, right? The gospel influence in a culture works the very same way. Christians within a culture act as agents of change, slowly transforming the culture from within. And then we see number three, that although the kingdom of God works invisibly, its effects is evident to all. Its effects is evident to all. That's why if you look at a church, a congregation like ours, you know, it's important for us to hold each other accountable, is it not? Why? Because the kingdom of God is in our midst. And the love that we have for one another will prove to the world that we are the children of God. See, so the way we relate to one another absolutely has to be biblical because the kingdom is within our midst. Then number four, the question we want to ask here is what is the ultimate effect of the ever-increasing or ever-advancing kingdom of God? What is the ultimate effect of this advancing kingdom? Well, the effect of the kingdom of God will be all-encompassing. The effects of the kingdom of God will be comprehensive. It includes everything. 
You may see a little statement that you're now seeing on our walls and on the pillar, all of Christ, fall of life. Because we believe that there isn't, there isn't an inch within all the universe where Christ is not king over. Christ is king over all. He is king of all kings. He was given all authority and power in heaven and on earth. And so, what effect does this kingdom of God have and ultimately will have? You see, and this, this would lean towards prediction, right? This would lean towards actual Bible prophecy. What, what do you see happening in the future with Christianity? And I'm talking about distant future. Well, just as yeast works until the dough has completely risen, the ultimate benefit of the kingdom of God will be worldwide, absolutely. In Psalm 27, 19, it says, And blessed be the, His glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with His glory. That's a prophecy. Habakkuk 2, 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. His kingdom will grow and will continue growing. Remember, His name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then it says, And the government shall be upon His shoulder. And of its increase, His government's increase, there shall be no end. It'll increase, it'll increase, it'll increase, and it'll increase forever and ever and ever. until the knowledge of the, of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 through 45, it says this, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So this was Daniel in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, And in that day, or in the days of these kings, let me say that, in the day of these kings, Daniel's day, these kings that came, he said, God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So he's saying to the king, um, there are many kingdoms and they, some are going to be lifted up, others are going to go, others are going to be destroyed, but God is coming and He's establishing a kingdom that will consume all these kings and this one kingdom shall stand forever. Verse 45, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, because this was Daniel's, oh, this was the king's dream, remember? He saw this pillar, excuse me, he saw the statue, and the statue was made up of different materials. Then he saw a stone being cut out of a mountain, but it was cut out without hands. It just got cut out. Who's the stone? Jesus, he's the rock. And he sees that stone roll down, 
toward this big statue made up of all these different materials, every material representing different kingdoms that existed in that time. This stone rolled down and smashed up against the statue. The statue was destroyed. But look at what happens to this stone. And as much as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountains without hands, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold of that big statue, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is true. Look at this in verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone, here's the big one, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That stone grew and grew until it became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. He was absolutely talking about the kingdom of the God was going to establish on the earth. It was going to swallow up all the other kingdoms, consume all the other kingdoms, and it was going to be the only kingdom, and it was going to fill the whole earth. That is to answer the question, what is the ultimate effect of the ever-advancing kingdom of God? The ultimate effect is that it will cover the earth. That's, that's, the, that's the end of your labor. That's the end of what you are currently involved with. God has, in His providence, placed you within the history of that day. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? That day they will look back to you and they might look at you as the early church. Who knows? But they will look back to you and they will see your efforts, your faithfulness. They will see, they will see your commitment to the work of God. So what is the ultimate future of this kingdom? The ultimate future of this kingdom, we find that in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 26. It's, it shows that when the kingdom has grown to its appointed size, then the Lord will come. All right, so that's, that will probably go against the grain of many people here in their view of eschatology. When is Jesus coming? They will say, well, the world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And just before we all die, he's going to come and save us. But it really goes against the grain of Scripture that says he's coming back for a, what bride? Without spot or wrinkle. He's coming back for a glorious bride, right? He's not coming back for a bride that's, that's <laughs> totally being... Um, um, conquered and um, you know he's not saving out or something like that no he's coming back for a glorious bride without spot nor wrinkle and we see in 1 Corinthians 15 24 and 26 it says this now I want you to really to put on your thinking cap okay watch look at this verse just look at it because we've read it over and over and we never saw what it said then comes the end all right then comes the end. When? When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When comes the end? The end is when he delivers this kingdom to God the Father. 
Then comes the end. When? When He, Jesus, delivers this kingdom to God the Father. When He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So this kingdom is going to put an end to all rule and all authorities and all powers and all other kingdoms just like Daniel saw or interpreted what the king saw. He's putting all of that to an end. Then the end comes after he gives that to his, to his father. So let's read it again. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Verse 25. For he, Jesus, must reign in his kingdom till he has put all enemies under his feet. So yes, he has a kingdom within which there are many enemies, but he will put them all under his feet. He'll put an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. He will give it this kingdom to his Father. And that is the end. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That is the ultimate future of this kingdom. So how does this knowledge of the kingdom building impact your life, my life? How does it touch us? Well, Calvin said, it is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. It is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. It's like when a truth is practiced by believers, the world can see that truth in action. It becomes visible, right? And so... <clears throat> The church, the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom of God visible. We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ. How do we do that? We do this by submitting to the kingdom of Christ or to the rules of Christ or to the principles of Christ or to the will of Christ in our job, in our family, in our school, in our marriage, in, even in our checkbooks. We as a community, we live in a certain way and the world looks upon it and they see this kingdom and it's growing and it's impacting people's lives and people's lives are changing. And that is when you see the kingdom. Because God in Christ is king over every one of these different spheres in life. All of Christ for all of life. Christ needs to rule in every part of my life. This is the outworking of the kingdom. You, as a matter of fact, you are the new creation. The Bible says so. You are a new creature. Very clearly taught that you are, in fact, the new Jerusalem. You are, in fact, the new temple. Fit together, him being the cornerstone and the apostles, the foundation. You and I, in fact, were given a new covenant. Can you see how He has come to make all things new? All things are new for you and I. New covenant, new creation, new creature, new birth. The new temple, 
And as as we have been as we have been called to this, as we submit to this, the kingdom of God or the invisible kingdom of God is made visible right here on the earth. Sproul said this, and I'll close with this. God uses even the smallest, seemingly insignificant efforts of his people to build his glorious kingdom. You are one day on the other side of this life. When you are in your glorious life, you'll be able to look back and see how every single thing you did was part of God's building efforts. Every seed you sow, every life you touched, every word you spoke, it's all part of God building his kingdom. So my goal with this is to clarify that there's a gospel and that gospel is supposed to undo all the evil sin has done in your life. And that is the outworking of the kingdom of God. That is how God establishes his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father God, that you open our hearts to see that you are king, Jesus. You have already been enthroned. You have already been given all authority in heaven and on earth. You already rule and reign. And as we submit to you, as we obey you, we become part of the glorious building of this kingdom. This government that is upon your shoulder and of its increase, there shall be no end. This seed, this little mustard seed that will grow to a massive tree in which the birds from all over will come and nest. This little bit of yeast that penetrates the whole lump. This gospel that you have that you have called us to preach and proclaim will succeed and therefore father we can declare it with all confidence we can preach the gospel we can should teach the gospel we should share the gospel and the gospel needs to impact our lives this is your kingdom amen amen Amen. did you get something out of the word amen